0: Ruchi, welcome
1: thank you thanks for having me today
0: thank you so much for coming and talking to me about this um i had you on my podcast a while ago and it was such a popular episode in fact i think one of my friends told me she listened to it three times wow so we'll have to yeah um live up to the the previous hype i guess from our last our last <laughs> recording together but obviously we're here it's like just a, a crazy time for all of cholesterol um you and i are here in khutsarats Um, so we have uh, our perspective of being here, but of course, like, I mean, you probably do like, I do have lots of family in arts israel. Yeah. Um, and I think because of social media, especially also, we really have that feeling now of how much we are all connected and we're all one. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but let me just start off with just asking how you're doing and what has been going through your mind these last two weeks.
1: Yeah. So, you know, my husband and I run, Cure of organization. And so, like, my main thought was I need to support people. Like, people are going to be looking to me for support and chizuk and direction. And in a way, that has been my saving grace because, Mm. like, during the day, I'm just very busy tactically and practically, you know, responding to people, um, sharing information. You know, people are sending me information and um, we're organizing initiatives to help people. And, you know, I, I teach eight classes a week, um, you know, not all of them weekly, some of them every other week or once a month. But so using that opportunity to talk about the situation and to to say Hillam for Israel with people who, who maybe don't typically say to Hillam or don't have access or understand what that even means or how to do it. Um, And that's all been very, very good, very good for me. I mean, not just, not just ruchnius-wise, but um, mental health-wise, you know, because I, like during the day, I know what to do and I know how to do it. And I'm busy and my mind is busy and I'm busy with good things. And that really feels amazing. And then it's nighttime Mm -hmm. and at nighttime, you have to go to sleep and then it's quiet. And that's where, oh i'm gonna get emotional like that's where all the trauma starts creeping in um i grew up as a very aware grandchild of holocaust survivors and i they my grandparents did not talk about their experiences at all but of course i i read a lot of things and i heard a lot of things and you know there was a significant number of years in my childhood where i couldn't fall asleep at night unless i read comic books because i had to take my mind off of the holocaust um And that's what's been coming back into my mind now, like trying to not picture the hostages and trying to not think about what they're going through and trying to not have survivor's guilt for the fact that I'm going to sleep in my safe bed and my kids are safe and we're not going to have a siren in the middle of the night and the night, the nighttime has been really hard.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about the survivor's guilt because that's something that I feel very strongly um, also, Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, something that you said before, just about um, being the grandchild of, of Holocaust survivors, there is this sort of generational trauma mm-hmm. that I think that we all experience that has come forward for a lot of people during this time. And I think that that's, it's kind of like always under the surface, I think certainly for Ashkenazi Jews. Oh yeah. That I've really noticed. Um, and, you know, this is, this is sort of, this is bringing that back. And I think also, you know, I had this, you um, I had this thought of when this happened and, you know, after Yontif and I'm looking at my phone and I'm scrolling through things. And I thought, okay, the Holocaust was what, like six years long, right? right? All the stuff that was going on in um, Europe, how did people live in America? And it occurred to me that first of all, they didn't have access to the information. So what there was like, there wasn't even television then. So you know, there wasn't video. So they had radio broadcasts. I'm sure certain people knew what was going on, but large like community of jews didn't really know exactly how bad it was till afterwards the mm-hmm. new york times certainly wasn't reporting it right so but we have this sort of instant access to everything that's happening immediately plus we have the visuals like the pictures and the the thing so like what do you think about that
1: so that that did occur to me like um you know Last week was my husband's and my 30th anniversary and which beautiful. So grateful.
0: Congratulations,
1: oh, Hashem amazing. Right. Um, and we were like, Oh, what should we do for our anniversary? And both of us without even like discussing it, we were like, it's not the right time to celebrate. Right. You know? And we need, if whatever we do, it's going to be muted. And just this almost visceral feeling, like, I don't know, kind of really made me think of the nine days where Chazal have to tell us not to drink wine and not to play music, but it's like, Right now, it feels like the nine days, like I don't feel like anybody has to tell me not to celebrate. It just feels wrong to celebrate, Um, you know, to the extent that we had a family wedding this past weekend, it was like, I had to make myself stop thinking about Israel so I could be fully present for the Simcha. And I was thinking about the Jews in America during the Holocaust and how did they go about their business? How did they, you know, I never really thought about that angle before. I always thought about the Jews in Europe and the ones who got away, like, thank God, you know, they were the lucky ones. But now, now I've been thinking about them a lot. Mm -hmm. How did they go through their day and get up and go to work and send your kids to school? And and were they also afraid of anti-Semitism at home like we are? I mean, I was out jogging the other night and I, for the first time in my life, I was wondering, like, am I safe in my neighborhood to jog alone at night? Is this a dumb thing to do? You know, I have never experienced an anti-Semitic incident. Oh, I have
0: nothing major. I remember once being with um, uh, somebody once threw a penny at me, Hmm. which used to be like a thing that people did to Jews. That was like an anti-Semitic thing. Like that Jews are cheap and they'll bend. Yeah, down. right. I, it was like a thing, like a long time ago. So like little things, like little things, like those kinds of things.
1: I never, I've never, and I and I asked my husband, and he also said he has never been the target of an anti-Semitic act. So like, I feel like this is all new for me, but by the same token, it feels very old. It right. feels right like a generation's old. Like this, it's new for me because I have and then, and. Well, so just to finish my thought, it's new for me because I've been living in the lab of luxury. And then my follow-up thought to that is, is it really luxury to live a life of peace? Interesting. What do you mean by that? Meaning like us American Jews have this expectation that we should be able to get up in the morning, And go to shul and send our kids to our Jewish schools and go to work and have Shabbos and legally be able to take off from our businesses when it's a Jewish holiday. And we have this like expectation that America should, not just America, but like when Jews in other countries don't have those luxuries, we're like, well, that's a human rights violation. But now, now I'm like, well, is that an entitlement or is that a luxury? Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know what it is anymore.
0: So so interesting is that where I thought you were going with that was that is that product, like you know having this sort of life where we really don't have to think twice so much about being Jewish and we don't have to be worried and we don't have to be concerned and we all want that of course and nobody wants anybody to be hurt right I mean when we dive in same... for peace when we dive in for shalom that's what we're asking for to just right. live our lives in peace So live our lives in peace but I wonder if we've gotten complacent I guess is what I'm wondering. Well, because of that we have yeah
1: and really like if you dig a little deeper right which is I think the name of your podcast <laughs> <laughs> if we dig a little deeper I was just talking about this in my partial class at JFX yesterday I asked my audience to close their eyes and think for one minute what would happen to Judaism if the world stopped hating us hmm The vast majority of Jews would run straight into non-Jewish arms.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so the world reminding us that we're distinct is like it's a necessary evil.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Oh, of course, I want peace. Of course, I want a good Israel advocating to the American government for the rights of Jews of course, I will vote for people who are going to advocate for me as a Jew. But it's like this dichotomy where by the same token, I understand that all of this adversity has brought out the best in us.
0: It really has. I was thinking about that. Like if only they knew what they've unleashed. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like just, I, I said this also I was speaking and I'm like, I, I don't know if this is a true number, but I've certainly seen this going around. And I'm sure you've seen it also that over a hundred restaurants in Tel Aviv made the, their kitchens kosher so that they could serve meals to the army. So I don't know if that's true. A hundred.
1: Well, I don't know if the number is true, but there's definitely been a significant surge.
0: Right. And so could you imagine like two, three weeks ago going over to any one of those restaurant owners and saying, right. Hey, do you want to become kosher? They would have laughed in your face if not right. reacted violently in a negative way. Yeah. And imagine saying, no, in two weeks, you're going to not only do it, but you're going to be happy to do it. And you're going to volunteer to do it. Like that thought would how would what could it possibly happen for that?
1: And like, right. and I'm seeing this not just in Tel Aviv, I'm seeing this right here in my own community in Cleveland. People that have been disconnected from JFX are knocking on the door now, right? they saying, I need spirituality, I need to be connected to my community, I need to reconnect.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's a phenomenon, it's it- a widespread phenomenon.
0: It is, And it's global and not only is it global, but like kind of going back to what we said about just being connected because of the media, which I want to talk to to you about a little bit more as we go through this, but um, we just, we see it all and we experience it and you can easily see like that clip that went around with everybody from all the different places around the world, singing a or something like that, where we really are able to see it on a global level. It's not just in our community. It's not just in the one part of the world. It feels like it's everywhere. The fear feels like it's global. The fears mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, a friend of mine told me that she was at some sort of an event, um, over the weekend. Like I think it was, I don't know, maybe it was a Sunday night last week, Sunday, and she came out, and there were like Palestinian protesters, and again that feeling of like, this is this happening in my community. We're so accustomed to being safe and protected right. here in America. Thankfully, I'm very grateful. My father was always so grateful to America. His parents left before the war and were able to come to America and their entire extended families were all murdered. So he really grew up feeling like the sense of gratitude to America for, you know, giving his parents the safe haven when the rest of the family wasn't so fortunate, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know, so we feel incredible gratitude, but just the sense of like not being safe is so new. It is. Um, I want to go back to what you said before about survivor's guilt. It wasn't even something that I had on my list to talk to you about, but you mentioned it. And I feel that very, very strongly. Again, yeah. like you get into your bed at night and it's comfortable and you think that there's somebody who's a hostage somewhere. Right. Terrified. And, or, you know, people who lost their families, mothers whose soldiers have gone out, uh, who've been called up and right. you know, wives, you know, who's, whose husbands are on the front, children, whose you know, everything, everything. Um, How do you deal with that? What are, do you have any suggestions for people who resonate with that?
1: Yeah. You know, so there, there's a lot of, things that I'm not right now. I am not a mother who has kids in Israel at Mm -hmm. all. I'm certainly not a mother who has soldiers fighting right now. Um, I'm not in Israel right now. Although, you know, my husband and I have always talked about retiring and living in Israel one day. And, you know, I keep thinking about that. Um, but I'm not right now. I'm not any of those things. Um, I don't know that many soldiers personally who are right there. I have one cousin who's there whom I haven't seen in a very long time. Um, I haven't even had to make a decision about whether to bring a kid of mine home. I'm just not in that pressure right now. Um, so I think that what I am um, thinking about survivor's guilt is that, you know, on the one hand, there is a very powerful Mida, you know, and I know you and I have talked about most many, many times um, I know that Masur is a big, you know, Hafez Chaim focus, and mm-hmm. it's certainly the focus of a lot of my teaching in the Kirov world, uh, to the extent that there are people who really know very few Hebrew words, but they know the word Masur. It's actually quite, <laughs> quite me, beautiful, um, but like the one midah that keeps really, really coming to the forefront of my mind is the midah of being no ol Im Havero. Carrying the burden with your friend. So, in a sense, survivor's guilt is a function of no seva ul em javero, you know, because we do think about those who are not as fortunate as us or as blessed as us. And our heart, our heart breaks for those people. That's where survivor's guilt comes from. So it comes from a good place, that mida And and I want to talk also related to this about looking at graphic images and videos. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Yeah. But, you know, when I teach Musser, one of the things I focus on is that every positive Nida can be taken to an unhealthy extreme. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, this feeling of like, my heart breaks for those who are in pain. It has its place and it has its important place, but it can be taken to an unhealthy extreme, uh, an extreme where we are where we think we have to almost traumatize ourselves in order to be on par with those who have been traumatized and and I think that's part of why people are looking at graphic things reading graphic things because they feel like what i should sit here in my comfortable house and have the luxury of saying oh i don't want to look at that when other people never had the never had the choice mm-hmm. and and it it can be taken to an unhealthy extreme. No seba olim carrying the burden of your friend. Right, like Hashem says, when Hashem appears to Moshe in the burning bush, and why is He appearing to the burning bush? Because Hashem wants to show B'nai Yisrael, I'm with you in your pain. I'm carrying it with you. What you cannot do, you know, and this is like where mental health and mussar intersect, which I, I know is is your specialty, is like no seba olem If you look at the preposition in that phrase, right? No Seba'ol carrying the burden, im havera, with your friend. You cannot carry it instead of them. You cannot take it away from them. I am not going to make it, I'm not going to make, take, I can't pretend it's not there and I can't take it away from them. What I can do is I can be with them in it. Now, if we are traumatizing ourselves, then we can't be helpful to our friend. Because then we become debilitated. Mm-hmm. And then we become like paralyzed. If you're, I, I, there are people who are like walking around in a daze. They can't do anything. They don't know what day it is. They, they're stunned and incapacitated. That's not no seba olam chavero. No seba olam chavero means that you're activated to carry the burden with your friend. And there are many ways that we can do that. We we'll, we should get to that. But if survivor's guilt is being taken to an unhealthy extreme where I can't function, then I cannot, then I cannot help my friend. I cannot be with them in their pain because I'm getting consumed by my own pain. So I I think it's, I don't know, that that's what I've been thinking.
0: Yeah. I think that that's true. I also think like the survivor's guilt also, what I find, I mean, at least for me that sometimes it just, it, it sort of forces you a little bit to say, or I mean, this is sort of my response personally, where I say, like, why, you know, you feel so connected to somebody else who's a Jewish person, and you think, well, I'm not any better than them. And so it's, again, it's a little bit of an unhealthy loop, I think, sometimes, mm-hmm. of in a certain way, almost like a lack of itachon. If you really yes. want to take well, it, like, really, sort of I care think it, it takes down. Hashem out of
1: the picture. Right. Obviously, Hashem wants me to be in Cleveland, Ohio right now. Mm-hmm. Hashem doesn't want me to be in Israel I I I could have been in Israel I was supposed to travel to Israel today I wow. had tickets for October 22nd you know I was supposed to be going on supposed to I'm supposed to be going on a momentum trip clearly it was Hashem's will that this not happen when I was in Israel that this ha- happened when I'm in Cleveland and I'm an American citizen and I live here so like you know in a way in a way I mean guilt is never helpful that's for sure but it does it does I, I agree with you it does sort of take Hashem out of the picture if Hashem wanted me to be in Israel that's where I would be he wants me to be here because clearly I have a role to play here
0: yeah have you been fielding um either calls or questions about bitachon just in general or how could Hashem let this happen type of thing and what how do you respond to that
1: Yeah, so um, in my classes, I really try to preempt that by saying that it's very hard to understand how Hashem allows such evil to happen. Um, And when people reach out to me privately, I I have very much directed people to Tehillim, Mm
0: -hmm. even
1: people who don't read Hebrew or don't typically say Tehillim, because, you know, I think the words of David Hamalach are literally, I, I have never found them as poignant as I do right now. Because David Hamelach has no problem saying to Hashem, Kaylee, Kaylee, Lama Azavtani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? You know, and he expresses all the things that we're thinking that we don't think we can say out loud. David Hamelach says them out loud, except that he always lands on a note of Emunah, but Hashem, you are holy. And he He affirms that knowledge. It's interesting because David HaMelech doesn't attribute the bad to Hashem. He attributes the bad to his enemies. And Mm -hmm. he asks Hashem to save him from his enemies. So, of course, David HaMelech was a tzaddik and a kadosh. Of course, he knew that everything happens from Hashem. But he doesn't say, like, Hashem, you did bad. He says, Hashem, you allowed my enemies to do bad. You're hiding your face from me, Hashem.
0: It's very interesting to note how he says it. You know, and, and- the beautiful thing yeah. that I, I never would have articulated the way that you just did. And we talked a little bit before we started about the benefit of just doing audio. And we were talking about the fact that we're both sitting here and our audience now knows that we're in our tiffles with no, no makeup But the other benefits, right. just can't see the fact that I'm like totally crying right now because that was just so beautiful. And I never really, I, I also like you have just, I say to him every day and I have been for a while and it's beautiful. But like I kind of say my him you know, I have a list inside and people that I'm nominating for. Um, and now my list is filled with the names of my cousins who are high limb and and people who are sh- struggling. And I really, the words have resonated for me in a way that they never have before. And I totally agree with that. That was just amazing. Thank you. So maybe, so maybe let's just move to that subject that you sort of briefly mentioned. We've been sort of flirting with this um, uh, just you know, the the videos, watching videos, um, media, all that kind of stuff. How informed are you? How informed do you stay? Like, how much do you keep up with the news? What do you think is like a good balance? Is there a good balance? Yeah. So
1: it's interesting. Um, I used to be of the mind that I have to be very informed and very up to date on the news. Mm-hmm. um, a number of years ago, I moved away from that, and I started following fewer news sites, and I actually deleted all the news WhatsApps from my phone, and I figured when there was important news, I would know about it, um, and Bar Hashem, like, I was really very happy with that decision, and it was very good for me. Now, uh, after Yentif, when I turned my phone on and I started realizing what was going on, Um, I decided that I did want to follow the news so I started following two news sites and now I'm back down to one and Uh I don't read it every day like before I go to bed at night I catch up on the news of the day and I say my Tehillim so now um every night before I go to bed I catch up on my the news of the day like I follow one whatsapp group with the news and I say my Tehillim for Israel and I say my names that I have saved and like I feel like that's my hishtag list like without getting swallowed up without having it own me. um, I am following the news. I also am on Instagram a lot, probably Mm -hmm. too much. Although I I have a timer on my phone where all my social media accounts combined, um, it shuts down after 45 minutes each day. So in the beginning, I was overriding the time limit, but now I'm really being strict about it again, because it's not good for me. Um, So where I follow Stand With Us and, you know, different sites and I repost a lot of things for my, you know, I have like, I don't know, 4,500 followers on Instagram. So I feel like a part of my Heshtad is sharing information about Israel that's accurate. And so and I also very much try to share positive stories. So the beautiful initiatives and, and the chesed and the actos that's coming out of Israel that, you know, the people who follow me on Instagram might not see in other places. So as far as graphic content, I myself do not watch any of it. I don't look at any of it. I don't read any of it. Um, and just for me personally, I know that that would be very detrimental for me. It would not contribute anything constructive or positive. It would just put me in a very bad place and make it very difficult, if not impossible, for me to do anything constructive in this situation. Additionally, of all the rabbinim and all the mental health professionals and anybody with any degree of authority, I still have not seen one opinion that says that we should be engaging in that. In fact, mm-hmm. the opposite is true. Across the board, I have seen everybody say, Don't watch this stuff, don't look at this stuff. It's not good for you, it's not healthy. You know, from, you know, again, like, rabbinic authorities and and mental health authorities. Like I haven't seen one person suggest that there's any value in that. So not just, not just that I have a sensitive soul and it would be very painful and difficult and unhealthy for me, but because of what I've been reading from others, I really feel that it's actually not healthy or good for anybody. Now, I mean, different people have different thresholds with this. And maybe for some people, what they consider, what I consider too graphic, they don't consider too graphic. You know, um, I guess every person has to find their sweet spot where they feel activated and outraged enough to advocate, speak up, dove in, write a letter to their kid's school, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, Particularly, I feel you know, the women who I am involved with in my community, in JFX and and the more global community of, you know, non-form women who have gone to Israel with me and learned about, you know, coming closer to Hashem and finding a path of spirituality. Like a lot of these people are in non-Jewish environments. Their kids are in non-Jewish schools. They're in non-Jewish universities. They're working in non-Jewish companies. Like they have to be activated to speak up for Israel in all these non-Jewish spaces that they're finding themselves in. So if some degree of disturbing content is going to activate them in that way without being debilitating, then maybe that's the sweet spot for them.
0: Yeah. I hear that. I remember actually, I was in grad school when I don't know if you remember the story of the flotilla that happened and there was all this like, you know, um, Israel was being accused of doing things that they actually hadn't done. Mm -hmm. And I was giving a class at the time and I was in school, in grad school with a bunch of people who were saying all this stuff about Israel and, I remember one of the um, women in my class was like, you have to go and counteract that narrative with the facts and tell them this and tell them what really happened. And, da, da, da. and I'm like, I don't really think that that helps. And, I, and we've seen this even just recently with this thing that happened with the hospital bombing that like nobody really cares that much about what the actual facts are. And, like, I think the thing that I can do as somebody who's very visibly Jewish and is very, you know, I've said I'm an Orthodox Jew. They, everybody knows that is just to make a kiddush Hashem with how I behave and how I speak.
1: So I think that both front, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think that there's hisshadlis on both fronts. Mm-hmm. And not every, I don't think that everybody has to do every form of hisshadlis. I don't think everybody has to speak out on social media. That's not everybody's hisshadlis. For some people, their hishtadlis is, they're they're in yeshiva and in Eretz Yisrael or, or not. Maybe they chose to leave Eretz Yisrael and now their yeshiva has reformulated somewhere in the Catskills or I don't know, all the different places. And they are focusing on their Torah every single day and saying Tehillim and saying Achinu and that's their Heshtadlus. That's fine. Everybody has to do some degree of Heshtadlus, but I do think that for some Jews, and this this is a part of, I do believe that in, in today's day and age, it is a part of our Heshtadlus to speak out for Israel where and when we can. And again, that might not be, you know, your form of Heshtadlus. That may not be how Hashem positioned you in the universe, um, for me on Instagram, I do feel that that's part of my list that I can do, and you know, all these Jews who are in all these non-Jewish spaces and these college kids that I learn with who are in not who are on non-Jewish campuses, like they have to be activated with the truth, and they have to be able to speak intelligently about Israel in the face of pro-Palestinian protests. So I do think that is a valid form of hachshavas for certain uh, populations.
0: I love the way you threaded the needle for me there, actually, because I was talking to a friend and I know she's going to listen to this podcast, so you know who you are. Um, <laughs> we were talking about this very topic and my approach has always been sort of ace um, of stone, That's just what it is. And I need to not speak Lashon Hara and I need to do the things that Hashem wants of me to do. And whatever's happening out there is anyways in the hands of Hashem. So it, this is just a, you know, like kind of sort of a more of an insular approach. And she was saying what you were saying a little bit. Um, but I like the way that you, you the way that you framed it in the context of Heshtadlus makes a lot of sense to me. And of course, also everybody being in their different roles and being in their different environments and given different tasks by Hashem. Like I'm speaking, my audience who listens to this is probably mostly um, from women. And I generally am preaching to the choir and not so much in that of world, that non-religious world, or even in that non-Jewish world, as so many people are. So I really appreciate, and I like the way you just said that.
1: Right. I mean, and I think that it's true with Hishadlis in general, not just with this specific, right? I mean, like, you know, the 12 tribes, the, the 12 Shvatim were all different and they all had their role to play. And some of them served Hashem more from a Torah perspective and some, Shem, some served Hashem more from a business perspective and some served Hashem from leadership and some served mm-hmm. Hashem from wealth. And they all had their kind of instrument to play in the orchestra. So I feel like in general, it's like that, like you know, I'm very out there. I'm outspoken. I'm on social media. I write and I speak. That doesn't make my Hishtadlus and Hashem's Torah any more or less significant than somebody who is in Meish raising her 13 kids to be Yerushalayim. It's just a different instrument that we're playing. And I think just now it's more acute, you know, when we think about these different forms of Hishtadlus. But I think that they are all necessary paths. Um, and particularly, I will say that with non-Orthodox Jews, I feel that this form of Heshtablos of educating yourself about Israel to speak up is actually a way of coming closer to Hashem and Torah, because it's a pathway. Like Mm -hmm. Israel is something I can get passionate about. Like maybe I'm not passionate about keeping Shabbos, or maybe I'm not passionate about keeping kosher, um, or maybe I'm not that connected to davening, but, um, Love for Eretz Yisrael and love for my fellow Jew is is that's my like path for passionate connection to Judaism. So I think not only is it a valid a valid and necessary form of hishtalus, but for many people, it's their connection to Hashem.
0: All right, I think that's definitely true. And also, even just educating oneself about Israel really makes you see the Yad Hashem. Yes, and the incredible miracles that have occurred can, and continue to occur in the state of Israel. Right, absolutely.
1: And I think there's also a very significant aspect of Jewish pride here, where not only pride in Jews and how Jews conduct themselves, but pride in the Torah and of the values of the Torah. Like when you look at the charter of Hamas, which is literally a genocidal charter, you know, and then people are like, but the Israelis are this and that. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Like look at our charter, look at our charter, like, you know, I always say if you were to ask a non-Jew, like, tell me one Hebrew word that you know, what would it be? Shalom. That's right. <laughs> that's the charter of Judaism. Yeah. So everything, everything that's beautiful in this world is in the Torah. So it's such a it's it's like, oh my gosh, like we have a pretty cool religion. Yeah. What 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 when's the last time we've done anything like this? That's not who we are, that there's nothing about our religion that we need to be ashamed of just the opposite
0: is true all right um yeah that's amazing okay so on the subject of his his childless and you you kind of were sort of hinting at it but i want to just kind of bring it out more clearly for anybody who's listening to this who is thinking like well what is my childless what can i do and sometimes you look um so, <laughs> I was talking to a young girl recently, and she said, I feel like I should be starting an international chassid organization, but I have three little kids, and I don't know if I can do that right now. Because you see all these clips going around of all these incredible endeavor- endeavors and efforts and things that people are doing. And for somebody who's sitting in their house, whether they're in Eretz Israel or whether they're in Chutzla Aretz, wherever they are, and they're women in different stages of life, obviously, like, what do you think should be our attitude? What are some things that women can and should be doing? And what is, and this is sort of the second part of the question, but what is maybe or it's a different part of the same question, I should say, what is the unique contribution that you think women have in, in this effort?
1: Yeah, it's such a good question. I think it's very much going to depend on like where a person is at in their personal life. You know, like right now, I, you know, my youngest is 13 years old. I I, I have more discretionary time than a lot of people. Um, you know, if I were a young mom right now with like little kids at home, I would actually be trying to feel less isolated in this because I think that what a lot of women are feeling is this need to connect to their community, the need to come together. Like we ran an impromptu its last Musty Shabbos, and it was like last minute. I think we started advertising it on Tuesday or Wednesday, and we had over 70 women here from all walks of life just coming wow. together and People were crying because they needed an opportunity to connect to other women in a format where they could put all of their emotions somewhere positive and constructive, but specifically with community. And I think that women, um, especially women who are mothers who have young kids at home, but even if you're talking about single women where people are busy and they're working and they have their lives and they don't necessarily have easily accessible communities of other women to come together because everybody has schedules and everybody's busy and it's hard to coordinate everybody's lives you know but for me I feel like that's that's one of the things that women are craving and are aching to do is Mm -hmm. to come together in community to make a difference and so I feel like there's so many virtual connections like People are, you know, doing Tehillim on their WhatsApp chats and they're listening to Shiurim on Torah anytime or podcasts. But, like, to actual because we have all those options, it's even less likely that women will come together in person. You know, there was recently an Atzeras Tefillah and, like, it was 99.9% men. You know, the women's section was very sparsely attended because they're home with their kids. They're home with their kids and they just have a harder time getting out. So, I think that women really want to connect with other women and figure out what what can we do and that's going to depend on a woman's discretionary time on her financial ability um on whether she has kids doesn't have kids has a spouse doesn't have a spouse but but i think that every woman has to try to think to herself how can i come together as community to make a difference, you know, and again, as Heshtadlis goes, like in my unique way, like for me, Ruchi Koval, I happen to be a music person and I used to be in a band and I reached out to the women in my band and I said, hey, let's do this comes it. And I also have a building because my husband and I have a shul. So I had a ready-made venue to do it in, right? Not everybody is positioned to do specifically that, but I know that there are women doing other things. And there was this young mom who called me the other day and she's like, me and my friend were out walking and we decided that we're gonna get all our kids together and do a paint party and and paint cards and make bracelets for the soldiers. So they all got together, 25 young families. They brought their kids. It was five o'clock in the afternoon. They ordered pizza you know, and they, they also felt like so gratified to have somewhere to go and something to do where they could connect to other women, their age for the sake of doing something good. So I feel like every woman really has to ask herself, like, in what way can I be activated? You know, just taking my, my own station in life and my own ability and time constraints to make a difference. But and for some women, that might just be having a few friends over once a week and saying to them together. But at least you're connecting with other women, and you're doing something. It doesn't have to be a nonprofit organization. It doesn't have to be global. It doesn't have to be public. It doesn't have to be big. Just that you 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 know you can go to sleep at night and say today I did something for Klal Yisrael.
0: And I think it's two things. It's one, like for Zechus of people are on the front lines, people are fighting, people are in danger. And so even saying to him or taking on some kind of mitzvah thing that maybe you want to be a little bit more, I don't know, careful about. Um, But then there's that other aspect also, which you mentioned before, which is the sort of sense of mourning Mm -hmm. that, you know, feeling like you're in the nine days, which I totally feel I, there's certain things that I'm just like, yeah, this isn't just really appropriate right now. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. it's just not, it's not appropriate to, I don't know whatever um we're actually going out of town this weekend for my nephew's bar mitzvah and we had arranged prior to meet friends of ours that we never get to see who live in the city that we're going to and we never get together so maybe we'll go out to eat and we'll get together and I just answer a voice note I'm like I'd love to see you but honestly like I just I'm not this is not this doesn't feel right to me right now Mm -hmm. and it's just a personal thing I'm not saying that anybody else should be doing that but like you know meeting friends and going to a restaurant and hanging out together like for me as a sensitivity, like just strikes. Right? Well, I'll come to your house and we'll sit and we'll connect. Like I'm not I'm not, you know, negating that part of it. But mm-hmm. um so so part of the change in behavior, what can I do? I think is not just for the future, but it's also just an acknowledgement of mourning and sadness mm-hmm. and being together with Collie's role. You know, it's so interesting that you mentioned that um I remember years ago when my husband
1: and I were living in our two when we were first married and he he either read or heard a story that affected him very badly. And we were talking in the beginning about, you know, the American Jews during the war, during World War II. Mm-hmm. And he had heard a story about somebody, I wish I could remember who it was, that for the duration of the war, he did not take sugar in his tea. Right. Because he wanted to show the no se ba'ol and chaviro. you know, and my husband decided then, so this goes back to over 25 years ago. That he wasn't going to have cake and cookies during the week, only on Shabbos, until the situation improved in Eretz Wow! And so far, he has not felt. Oh my gosh! Like the situation, yeah. So he doesn't eat cake or cookies during the week, and I mean, at this point, it's like a netter. I guess I don't know if he could <laughs> he could undo it. But mm-hmm. sometimes it's not just what you're going to do, but what you're not going to do mm-hmm. now. Right. Right.
0: It's important,
1: yeah. And, you know, that's very powerful. It's very, very powerful. And I I told an Israeli friend of mine that we decided to sort of downplay our anniversary celebration. And she felt good. She felt good about that. Like she felt like, because I think a lot of our friends in Israel not so much in the firm community because I think the firm community is extremely connected. And I think they know that we're davening for them, but I think more in the non-firm world, they, they don't really know how it's affecting us. And they, 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 it's so gratifying to them to know that they're not alone in this mm. and the entire world is rooting for them. You know, I remember one time we brought in Rabbi Yosef Mandelovich, who was a Soviet refusenik for many years and who was in solitary confinement and all of this. And he said, when he learned that American and Israeli Jews were going to bat for him, that meant everything, you know, that's the definition of no say, ol. And so I think like when we think of what we're doing, I think we should really ask people in Eretz Yisrael, "What do you want me to be doing? How 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 is what I do going to help you?" Now, of course, if it's davening and learning a mitzvot, you know that's uniformly helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. But other than that,
1: like, let's listen to our brothers and sisters in Eretz Yisrael. What what is it that they that they you know? It's like if somebody is sick, you know, and you you're like, "Here, eat this. Here, drink this." You know, you know, you ask them like, "How are you?" You know. How can I help? How how can I be helpful to you now? If somebody's struggling in your life, you know, you don't just do you, ask, you say, How can I be useful? What what would be the most helpful thing for me to do right now? That's what I want to do for you. So if we really want to be no but all I'm trying to figure out what we can do, let's listen to what they're telling us.
0: All right, I love that. Which and it actually brings me perfectly to my last question that I'm gonna ask you. Um is as far as doing things and all all the incredible things that we've seen, which we've mentioned, the the actus, the unity so many things and i i felt this such a clear line of demarcation from you know when i after Yantif when i picked up my phone matzah you know simchas torah to the next day like the world had shifted in a day and everything was different i remember experiencing something similar like after 9 11 but you know this is even different than that um where there's just a new reality and certainly um internally as a Jewish person feeling like the things that we were arguing about didn't really matter. We saw in this, you know, in Israel, certainly everybody was at each other's throats with this traditional thing that's been going on. And even before that, all this sort of like the camps that people are in and the differences between from non, from whatever, like it doesn't matter. We're all together. There's an incredible spirit of and love. And you so see that. And I think I hope I'm articulating this for everybody else and everybody's probably feeling the same thing is we want this war to be ended quickly and we want every all the hostages to come home safely. We want all our soldiers to be safe. We want to eliminate Hamas and all the enemies of Qal Yisrael who wish us harm. But at the same time, we don't want to let go of this incredible achdus that we've just discovered. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the fear that like, if the situation gets better, we'll forget what this feels like mm-hmm. um, is really real. And what, and what do you... Um, what do you say about that? Ay, 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 ay. <laughs> Look,
1: the bottom line is that adversity brings out the best in us. And, you know, after 9 11, I mean, those who were in New York will report that New Yorkers were really, really changed after 9 11. And, you know, there's this guy, his name is Ari Schoenbrunn. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He wrote a book called Miracles and Fate on 78 about his experience in 9-11. And we brought him in many years ago to be a speaker at actually two of our Shabbatones. And he's incredible. And he talked about this, like, we'll never be the same again. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and to some degree, the world never was the same again after 9-11. But did New Yorkers go back to
0: being New Yorkers? By and large, yes. And yeah, he now talked- we have more security at airports. I yeah. feel like that's the legacy of 9-11. Yay.
1: <laughs> no whole Israel yogurt in your carry on. Woo. Right. Um, right. But he talks about exactly the question you're asking, which is how do you take a horrific tragedy and make sure that you are irrevocably changed because of it? Mm-hmm. And the two things that he says is number one, he says that when he was getting ready to go to work on September 11th, he was supposed to do a scholastic book order with his kid and he was getting ready to catch the train. And his kid called out the window, dad, you didn't do my scholastic book order. And he was a self-described, you know, workaholic. He was the first one at his desk and he really wanted to not stay back because he really wanted to make his train. And he had this incredible moment of dilemma. And he finally said to his kid, okay, okay, okay. You're right. He comes back in the house. He sits down. He does the book order. He catches the next train. And because of that, his life was saved on nine 11. And, He says that because of 9-11, he made a very staunch decision to never go back to that workaholism, but to mindfully put his kids first. And mm-hmm. he says like, he, he he changed irrevocably because of that. The second thing he said was that, you know, he was in the finance industry and in the finance industry, you know, people use very coarse language and that's just considered like an industry standard. And after 9-11, he said to himself, I don't want to be that kind of guy anymore. And he decided to clean up his language and only to use refined language to the extent that people, everyone in his company knows now, like don't curse around Ari, he doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he's basically saying like, you're not going to be irrevocably changed because of something that happens to you. You're only going to be irrevocably changed because it's a, of a decision that you make in the face of what happened. And that if he wouldn't have consciously and mindfully made those two choices and been extremely focused on keeping them, he said like he too would have gone back, maybe not back to, you know, you can't just blithely go back to the way you were before a trauma like that, but with any long-lasting personality changes, no, no, not really. And I think that now, you know, when we're all very much in the throes of this, we need to be asking ourselves that question. What am I going to change now that is going to outlast this Sarah? Because, you know, we have Amuna that Hashem is going to save Claudius from this enemy, just like he has saved us from all of our enemies. And that we're going to win this war the same way Hashem has allowed us to win all the wars. And Hashem will give our our soldiers and our army the, the Chachma to know what to do. Um, and that with Hashem's help, this Torah will pass. We'll be able to go back to our Yisrael again. But we don't ever want to be the same after this. And I know Racheli e. Frankel has talked about this, this Ahavas Yisrael, and how can we keep this Ahavas Yisrael going strong. But... I, I, I appreciate your question because I think that we have to be pushed against the wall right now. And we have to be asked that question in what way are you not going to be the same person that you were before? And as I'm saying these words, I'm thinking to myself, Ruchi, what are you in what way are you not going to be that same person? I don't have an answer to that question yet. You know, and I'm, I'm challenging myself to come up with the right thing that I can do. That's going to be, that's going to be. A forever change for me. So I, I, I really am encouraging everybody who li- who's listening to this to try to consider and wrestle with this question over the coming days and weeks, so that this is all, you know, not for naught, but that this is going to create lasting and permanent change in, in us as Jews and as Qal Yisrael, how we view each other, how, how we view our responsibility to one another in the face of challenge
0: wow that was incredible and i i will pick up that challenge for myself as well because like as you were talking you were saying i'm asking myself what can i Ruchi, Kowal, do i'm asking myself what can i Yochavid, do and would repeat that same question to everybody who's listening and then maybe actually to everybody who is listening if you feel like you would want to share what that is. Um, and you can email me at a deeper conversation, 120 at gmail.com and share the inspiration, I guess, let us know and also follow you on Instagram. So where can people find you?
1: Um, right. So I'm on Instagram, ruhi.covel. Um I also have a WhatsApp channel. So you can, if you Google me, you'll get my blog, you can follow me there, you can email me there for ways to join my WhatsApp channel, my muster classes, I have two muster classes on Zoom and a couple in person. Um. So yeah, reach out to me and I will direct you to the right place. I have two books. One is Conversations with God, Prayers for Jewish Women, which has experienced a resurgence of late because it has transliterated prayers. So, you know, some people, again, who are not that used to davening or who have a hard time davening may find it helpful. Um, My other book, Soul Construction, which is about Musr and how to find Musser in our lives. And yeah, that's where you can
0: find me. That's amazing. And I will put that information in the show notes so anybody can find it if they go down there and look. Ruchi, thank you. This was incredible. I really appreciate your time and wisdom.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.